Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. Today on the show, we've got Jason Theobald, Kayla, and Dr. Scott Stevenson. And in the middle of recording, it dropped me out. So we're going to pick back up. It's just going to be Scott Stevenson, Jason, and Kayla. The only thing that you missed really was how my week was going and Kayla's and Jason's. But then we jump right into talking about Dr. Scott Stevenson and all things training. So enjoy. Okay, so yeah, I just I've sort of been doing things as they come to me along the way, but I've managed to do a lot of stuff. Um, personal training, gosh, I did. I was doing it in graduate school, literally '93, and all the way all the way through the early '90s. And then, of course, I had my own gym in Arizona for a few years, so I was training people there. And then the online thing wasn't even a thing, really. People just kind of doing this. There was no rhyme or reason. There were no teams initially online teams you see teams sometimes at the bodybuilding competitions like kind of clusters of people and everyone have a t-shirt people started doing t-shirts were sort of the initial initial focus for that and um so yeah i've kind of been at it a while and i've, I've actually i've gotten i don't know if we want to talk about philosophy of coaching but i'm kind of the anti-coaching coach in a way because i think that coaching in many instances robs people of the personal development they can get from the process of figuring out how their body works, you know, the struggle that comes with trying to get on stage or figure out how to organize your life so you can achieve the goals you set for yourself as a physique competitor, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's the things that, that are difficult that make you grow and make you better. And, and some coaches do too much, I think, kind of like, um, like this is, this is hopefully this doesn't this analogy doesn't hit anyone too hard, but it's kind of like an overbearing parent who wants to do everything for the kid, and you need to kick them out of the nest and make them fly a bit so they can grow and become independent. I think um, uh, Jordan Peterson actually has one of his twelve rules of life in the original book was something along the lines of of uh, of making sure your your kids become you know independent and autonomous in a way um, that they can take care of themselves. You owe that to them. That's your responsibility, and that may be along the lines of tough love. So sometimes coaching, I think, can too much be too much hand-holding. So I've gotten to where I try to do more of providing of information to help people help themselves, so to speak. So, and some of that, to be honest, just after for decades of like, okay, check in. Okay, let's pull 20 grams of carbs from your sixth meal or what have you. It's like, okay, I can only do this so much. And everyone knows what I'm about to do. Like the clients that I want to do, it's just, it's just sort of, um, it was like Groundhog Day after a while. So mm -hmm. there need to be some evolution. So that's kind of, and I think there's a void for that too. I think there's, there's plenty of people that will do coaching in that way, but um, uh, there aren't as many people doing what I do, I don't think, where I'm doing kind of consultations and I do it relatively cheaply. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a horrible businessman, but I just try to help people. So people tell you me know. to charge much more than I do. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, the goal of like all of us on here too is we just really want to help people and it's not necessarily like yeah of course we have to make a living and whatnot and all that but we just want to help people and stuff so mm -hmm. but we really want to talk to you a lot we have quite a few questions actually um so i'm hoping that we get through all of them and hopefully john can jump back on here his internet right. was being all wacky uh they're doing construction i guess so he's gonna try to jump back on but if not yeah. that's okay all right um, but fortitude training. So you have written this book and come up with this training style. Can you kind of like just give a brief overview of how you came up with this and just explain the principles for those who are unfamiliar with it? Yeah. Um, 
so it's the first thing I think that sometimes, and this actually fits in what we're just talking, what I was just just rambling about is what I have put together in fortitude training is one potential recipe from a number of ingredients that can be effective. So people want to say, so how should I do this? What's the best way to do this? Some of the questions are what's the best rep range or, you know, give me the black and white answer. And there really are very few black and white answers um, in this game. So it seems. So what I did with fortitude training is I, I put together some pieces um, of the recipe for success, so to speak, for, for muscle growth that I thought made sense. And it's funny because I've got this the standard fortitude training book. And then I came out with, or if you, if you have the book, you'll see there's something called the family man plan, which is a version of fortitude training I made for a guy who just didn't want to train on the weekends. He was kind of going mm-hmm. into retirement at the time. Paul Scarborough is his name. I can say his name's a great guy from the UK. He's still on the scene. Um, and that was just one version. And I made various versions of fortitude training early on when I was working with clients while the book had come out too, because they just had a particular number of days they could, they could train Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and Monday, Wednesday, every other Saturday, or they could do only weekdays, various ways you can put these things together. So the principles that I put together were all, um, I just put them here in a very basic fashion, one particular recipe. You can take the same ingredients and make a cake or make a cupcake or make a pancake or make various other uh, carbohydrate-laden um, desserts and all of the same thing. So one of the things that I think if you want to throw it into a category is fortitude trainings, it's a higher frequency type of regime. Um, and there's several reasons for that. We can go deep into science if you guys want to. Um, my background, and this is probably important, was that I've been doing DC training for a while, dog crap training, Dante Trudell's training yep. regime yep. with Dave Henry. Yeah. And um, so, and I was actually Dante's official DC trainer for a while. He would send me clients. So um, what that meant, of course, is that I had freedom to vary things up and break away from the standard DC two-way split or the three-way split, depending on the person. So I learned a lot in doing that. And the thing that that's just sort of a general um, phenomenon that you see is that the, a lot of the best, most genetically gifted bodybuilders don't need someone to tell them how to train because they can do just about whatever they want and it works. And many of them end up doing the pro split or a bro split, so to speak, where they train once a week because that will get the job done. Um, there's some reasons for that. And it relates back to fortitude training. Um, being a solution that I came up with for the less, the person who would have to come to me for training, the people who don't need it, they tend to do a pro split or blow split. Most IFB pros are doing that. I would, I'd wager to say at least the enhanced ones. I'm not, it's a little bit different in the natural scene, I think. Um, but you may have a, a different genetic, you have, you have the, the PEDs are involved. You may have a different genetic sample as well. But when you train once, the more you can train, the more you can recover from the better, generally speaking. There's also a phenomenon of what's going on when you're recovering that's leading to muscle growth. And a big player in that that, um, phenomenon are satellite cells. And I actually was just digging into some of this stuff just the other day. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I found a piece to this puzzle that I had been looking for for a while that was there. So the interesting thing about satellite cells is they're undifferentiated stem cells, basically. They're specific to muscle. So they're ready to become activated in muscle for one particular, several, a couple of different particular purposes. One being to become a new nucleus as the cells getting larger. So as muscle cells get bigger, they need more nuclei. They're gigantic cells. 
or those nuclei, the satellite cells nuclei could go to form new cells. And that would give us hyperplasia, more cells, meaning a bigger muscle. That process, once you train once and initiate that process, lasts probably four, five, six days. Um, there's one sort of muscle damage study where they saw after like five or six days activity of these satellite cells. And there's another study where they, where they found that individuals who have still had satellite cells active uh, from about the 24 to 72 hours, so like one to three days after training, were the ones who grew the best. And the ones who didn't were the ones where satellite cell activity was basically absent at that time. So there's something about having good genetics. You see this just in general. The people with the most satellite cells, the highest satellite cell density, they grow the best. The people who increase the satellite cell density, they grow the best. The people who have the highest release of the growth factors like MGF, which is an IGF-1 isoform, or myogenin, those people, those things that turn on satellite cells, they grow the best. So satellite cells are kind of important. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have good satellite cell activity, you're not going to grow. So someone who's got good satellite cell activity, they turn that on once, it lasts three, four, five, six days. We don't really know the time course, how it changes over training, what have you, but it lasts several days. So you can hit a muscle group on once a, once a week even, and you're actually, you have, a, you have progress, so to speak, as those satellite cells are going about that major reconstruction project of getting into the muscle cell, setting up shop as a new muscle nucleus, that's going to last four or five days after you've trained. So you can train infrequently and do quite well. You can train with a lot of volume and now you have lots of time to recover from that. You can, so those people who have the best genetics have satellite cell activity that makes, where it makes sense to train with large, with a low frequency or large intervals between their training, um, training bouts. But the thing that we know then, so look on the other side, people who don't do well have, some elevation of satellite selectivity, but it slows down after a day or so. So I think of this sort of like, this is sort of analogous to a balloon that you want to get to the ceiling. And sometimes you hit a balloon, it just keeps on going. It floats and floats and floats. That's someone with good genetics. The satellite selectivity is just lasts for several days. Some people don't have good genetics. You hit it once the training with the training um, uh, session, it goes up, comes back down the next day. So what do you do? You hit it again. You hit it again. You hit it again. So if satellite cells active, activity is active for a day or so in those who are less, less uh, genetically gifted, they don't do so well. And it's active for several days, just from one training session and someone who grows really well, we can sort of mimic the satellite cell activity. We can get the satellite cell activity to be a constant, constantly in progression by training more frequently. And that's an empirical finding. You find so many people, they got a weak muscle group. What do they do? They try to hit it more often. Reduce the volume. Maybe the training load goes up a little bit. The science suggests you can do that. So train with a little bit higher frequency. Allows you to train with more volume instead of just 15 sets all at once. You might be able to do six sets over three different sessions. So you get 18 sets in a week as opposed to just 15. So that was, I think, part of the reason why I had experience and Dante had experience and many people have experienced that aren't, they don't just you know, explode when they start to train, that higher frequency is important. So I created a, re a regime that sort of has a high frequency foundation. This doesn't mean that everyone needs to train in high frequency, but that was a sort of a catch-all net to get a lot of people um, that I think are going to be looking for a new training regime because the people who have good genetics 
they don't need one. They start to train and they just start to grow. It just happens. So they're not looking like, oh gosh, I want to buy every book I can. It's like, all I got to do is go in the gym and train and eat. And I'm going to, I'm going to be better than 95% of the other people out there. It's when they get to the upper echelons that that can actually be a disadvantage. They I've got a question here. Yeah. Scott. Um, yeah satellite cells. Um, yeah. <clears throat> are there, are there certain people who might have really good ones in certain body parts and not in others, or is it a full body thing? I've looked, I've looked for that for a comparison and I, and I would love to see, we know that when you sample the same muscle group, like the vastus lateralis, mm -hmm. um, among people that the satellite cell density and the growth factor response and the increase in satellite cells predicts who are the responders, the extreme responders and cluster analyses where they got extreme, moderate, and then like non-responders. So your responsiveness is, is related to satellite cell activity. My guess would be that if you have someone with a stubborn muscle group, it could very well be at least partly related to that. Um, we talked about this on, on my podcast with Scott McNally. And um, I don't know if you may have seen Scott or like one of the fun things about Scott is Scott's a, Scott's a good bodybuilder, a decent body. He's not a pro. He's not great. I think he would admit that. But he has world-class calves. His calves, I've, he, more than anyone I know, his calves are just ridiculous. Like they're, they're like Mike Menser size or like Mike, um, Mike Matarazzo size. Yeah. Yeah. Like just they're ridiculous. And we've talked about this on the podcast. It was come up several times. He grew up walking on his toes for whatever reasons, biomechanically, who knows, like he, he's just bounces around his toes. So he has a loading history in his calves of using them much more than anyone else. He talked, just talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He used to, when he played soccer, when he would, the fastest kid growing up. And when he plays soccer, his calves felt like they're going to explode because mm. he's up on his ball of his feet all the time. So his plantar flexors had this loading history as a kid that's very, very different than what you get from resistance exercise. So if someone has a weak muscle group um, or a strong muscle group, in Scott's case, a strong muscle group, it seems to be related to the loading history, what that muscle has undergone during the course of his lifetime. So then when he gets to be where he's 12 or 15 and he trains for the first time, he's already got great calves and he never even trains them. Like if he did, he would look, his legs would look even more like an inverted bowling pin, <laughs> you know, because when he gets in shape, his quads aren't great, but they're not bad, but they look, they look out of proportion because his calves yeah, are so yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there, I think there's something to say for loading history in the course of course of someone's development. Um, you know, I think posture can play a role. There's a cool study well, that just came out. Go ahead. I, you know, what about like, um, so I'll use myself for instance. Um, I have certain body parts that seem to grow well and certain ones that just were stubborn as shit. Mm. And the stubborn one, one of them was calves. And what I started doing was, was calves every day. Every time I'm in the gym, I do calves. Mm -hmm. And in between sets, I'm doing toe raises. Like I'm up on my toes. Right. My calves get compliments now. I'm not saying they're Mike Matarazzo style. Right. Like right. they get compliments. And so, but I did that every single day and I still do that to this day. Yep. And so that kind of seems to uh, go, fall in line with what you're talking about with Scott and the loading constantly as he's walking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about, like he pulled up a picture of Mar Martina Navratilova. Mm -hmm. Remember her? Yeah. I just remember this from when I was a kid. Yeah. She's a left-handed tennis player and her, she's got a, big cephalic vein on her biceps on that arm and the forearm is much bigger than the other side interesting 
and you see this like in uh, in mechanics, sure. who are wrenching all day long. They have a huge forearm. Yeah. And they're not trying to lift heavy weights, but they're doing lots of sometimes really like when they're trying to like, you know, break a rusted bolt or something like that. They got a brake bar on something. They're doing lots of heavy, strenuous stuff, but no eccentrics for the most part. You know, they're not lowering stuff repeatedly. They're, they're wrenching. It's all concentric work, you know, and that's where they're getting that's where they're getting muscle growth. And yeah. you, sorry, uh, I was going to say if you want this is kind of important. It's kind of cool. You look at the resistance exercise literature. With that stimulus, eccentrics are really important. Mm -hmm. But you have these examples where concentrics can produce tremendous muscle growth. Even there's an, an animal model where they like take out the soleus related to calves, take out the soleus and the gastroc will grow, or they'll take out the gastroc and look at the other two muscles, the plantaris muscle in there and um, in, in rodents as well. And they're just walking around. They're not they're they're doing some lower, but they're not doing calf raises. It's mainly plantar flexion. So it's concentric, but it's a chronic overload thing. So these different load, there's different ways to uh, to get muscle to grow. And resistance exercise is a one particular very intermittent stimulus. And you sort of recreated and doing calves all the time every day like that, more of a chronic stimulus that, that or tonic stimulus almost that 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 allowed you to get some muscle growth. Because maybe trying to do heavy ass calf races didn't work. Nope. Yeah. So there you go. So that's, that's one of the things I try to tell people sometimes is like, figure out what worked, what doesn't work and, you know, process elimination. So then talking about frequency and satellite cells and how important it is to kind of allow those satellite cells, I guess, to not, uh, I don't know if downgrades right term, but like go away. So we want to mm -hmm. be piggybacking on it. I get the concept. What's yeah. too much frequency? Like, is it okay for me? Like, I want to bring up my chest more. Can I, can I train it every day? Like I did my calves or is that an anomaly? Does it, would it be every other day? How do we kind of set that frequency and how do you go about figuring out if someone, you know, has that good satellite activation or kind of middle ground? Yeah. There's no, like, I wish there was like, go to Walgreens, get your satellite cells tested. Something, <laughs> me too. You know, um, it's all about recovery to some yeah. degree. Uh, I think this is what, I don't even know we, if we get questions and that we get off on these tangents and this may be what you said may have brought up why we even started talking about this. Someone was talking about junk volume and training every day. And I mentioned a, a good friend of mine who used to bench press every day when he was a kid, okay. he didn't know better. And the thing I brought up, I brought up then, which I think applies is that people do that when they're, especially when they're training, let's just start training every day. Someone's in full body every day. And if they're paying attention to their progress in the gym, which is a really good, at least indirect measure of your, of your recovery, then they're wanting to get stronger. If they keep on like, if they can't get past 185 on the bench press for 10 reps and they're training every day, eventually they say, you know what? I think I need to rest a little bit more. They just, so they auto-regulate that. So if frequency, given the amount of volume you've got in each training session um, is too much, you're going to see that in your performance in the gym in one sh some way, shape, or form. So you're going to have to kind of auto-regulate that. And I just did a, it was a, about a week, last week I did a talk, one of my favorite talks, um, why you don't look like a pro. Um, <laughs> but I did this one in German. This was for um, German listeners. I'm trying to try to do a lot, of, a lot more things in German, podcasts, et cetera. And one of the slides there is an important one. If you look, there's a number of genes that are involved with muscle soreness. So the breakdown that happens, which is part of that recovery cycle. So if you think about when you train, 
you've got an immediate primary injury that an insult that happens. And there's some, you look at the myofibular proteins, they're misaligned. Like they get screwed up. If you, I mean, if you do a muscle damage study, you'll see everything's all over the place. Z lines between the sarcomeres are all wonky. Everything's just a disaster. Like you, like when you, like you drove a big truck through a, you know, monster truck through your house. Um, so there's that primary injury. Then there's also the inflammatory response, which, which involves like tumor necrosis factor, interleukin-6. There's also the immune system is involved there. And then there's the, the recovery process. And actually IGF-2 is, seems to be involved there. And if you look at things like um, the actin-3 gene, which, involve, which codes for actinin-3, which is a structural protein. So it's part of what holds the, the sarcomere together and gives structural integrity. If you have the wrong, so to speak, gene for that, your sarcomere is more prone to be disrupted by, by training. So you get, you start off with more breakdown for X number of sets that you do. So someone with the wrong gene there is not going to get away with 15 sets. They may be able to do like six and they have so much damage, everything else being equal, but then there's gene variants for the, for the, those things that, that are involved with the cytokines involved with inflammation, gene variants for the IGF-2. So that whole cycle of train damage to some degree, remodeling the inflammation, et cetera, gene variants all the way around that cycle. And depending on your combination, you're going to have to vary what you do and how you do it. It, it may be, for instance, that some people do better with higher reps. Let's think one of the questions you had from the seminar in Nashville versus lower reps, higher reps may produce, or sorry, higher weights may produce more damage. So someone may, let's say they got someone who's identical otherwise for the sake of the, theoretically looking at this, but they've got one gene that makes them really susceptible to lots of damage when they go really heavy. But if they go lighter, 20 to 30 rep range, let's say, they don't get so much damage. And they can do many more sets, have a much higher volume load because everything else is in, in accordance when they train light. So they're a, they're a pumper, so to speak. They pump out high rep sets and they grow from that. They try to go heavy. It's a no-go because they get so much damage that they can only do a few sets. And do you, do you tend to yes. see a, a difference in like men versus women on this? Because, you know, breaking it down to like a lot of our listeners, they don't know exactly where their genes are made up of, of course, um, right. or what they want to train. And a lot of new people or not even new people, but they think that like, oh, more is better. So I'm just going to train every single day. But that can often lead to some, especially in women, some hormone issues because they're overtraining themselves. So, you know, auto-regulation, you know, some people just might not know what that is, but how do you, I guess, differentiate with that, especially with like women? Women tend to be able to handle a little more. They, they, in, in some of the muscle damage studies, for instance, they do better. Um, there seems to be a different, it's a different perception of pain. People attribute that to, you know, women are, have childbirth as a potential. Um, so they need to be able to handle that and, and effectively give birth to a child. So having a reduced pain sensitivity in some way, shape or form would make sense, but they have, they tend to be less susceptible muscle damage to a certain degree, and they tend to recover faster because of that. So it's always an individual process on average, you're going to see probably women able to recover a little bit more and handle more volume than men, um, lower body. Like they're going to be almost equally as strong anyway, um, relative to body weight, at least because of the distribution of muscle mass. So, and if you want to like, if you're a guy and you need someone up the ante on your leg training, go train with a woman and try to hang with her. You know, even with the same weights, a lot of times if she's near you in body weight, um, because that will be a, a tremendous, if you're someone who can't get after in the gym, it could very well be too much. So 
it, it comes down to, to the auto regulation um, process, which can be one of the hardest things to do for any, any bodybuilder, any physique athlete, because by nature, I mean, we want to go into the gym and punish ourselves. There's sort of a somewhat of an aggressive personality trait that has to underlie that desire to do that. So that tends to make us people who want to like really go up to them, think more is better, more is better and overdo it. And it's not better is better is better. And there were a couple of questions in the, in the outline for today that you, you sent that kind of address this. Um, one of them is this hormesis idea. So yeah. yeah, this is this, you know, this response to training. So you have a stimulus and you have an adaptation and there's a, so there's a dose response there. And at some point in time, the way I've sort of visualized training, this makes sense. And there's numerous um, processes in, in biological adaptation that fit this hormesis model. You get to a certain dose, so to speak, of training, and that's your volume load. It's a combination of how many sets you do, how many reps, maybe how many effective reps you do, how many work sets you do. It's going to be different for everyone. But at some point in time, you can keep on upping the ante and get a greater adaptation, assuming you recover appropriately. But when you try to do more, then your adaptation potential is going to go down. It becomes too much. You simply don't recover from it, even no matter how long you lap, how long you, you wait to recover. Um, that could be, you know, the interactions with these satellite cells. Um, what, you, what you could be doing in that case is doing what we call junk volume, right? So you got your workup set up at five days in, in between. That's good. You do 12 sets and you get sort of the, your maximal satellite cell activity from that. But then you decide, I'll just up it to 16 sets, you know, I'm eating more, whatever, but it doesn't matter. That's too much. All you do is produce more mechanical damage. And even though you wait five days and you're essentially recovered, um, the satellite cell activity that you, that you set into motion, the protein synthetic machine that you set into motion has, there's limitations there and you have so much breakdown that you brought run into play by doing those extra sets that the balance of synthesis and breakdown isn't as high as it could be because some of that synthesis simply just goes to recovery and repairing the damage that you, that was in excess of what was necessary. It was right, sim right. simply, there's no point in it. And right. the research where they finally figured that out is pretty cool. Um, I don't know if, I, if you want to let me ramble on that one or not, but we can keep going into okay. the questions because it's going to yeah. kind of lead into the next one right, it's sure. about like you were talking about rep variations and like how each person has their optimal like sweet spot. So maybe, yeah, right. Um, but then you know, is there is there necessarily an optimal range of reps for you know gaining muscle? You know, because they usually say like eight to twelve is the rep range, but you know, mm -hmm. can you do it off of like? three to five reps for someone that can handle that heavier load. Yeah. I've got a, um, I've got an article. I actually, I got a, I'm a geek. I, I did this all in a spreadsheet. I developed sort of a three dimensional picture based on the literature as I've sort of seen it of, of Mount St. Hypertrophy. <laughs> and it, and it looks at sort of this, this rep rep range idea or the relative uh, intensity. We're thinking about percent one rep max. And it's a huge range. Um, and the, un the underlying principle behind this is that to stimulate muscle growth, we need some amount of tension. People sometimes go into the, is the volume the driver of muscle growth? And that's a whole other topic, but there has to be some amount of tension that's produced during the sets, right? But it doesn't have to be as high as we might think. 
you and we see that from the blood flow restriction um, studies where they use blood flow restriction. They put a tourniquet, something to produce a metabolic stress in the in the muscles being exercised, being trained. And because of that, you change the activation pattern. You produce fatigue. You change the activation pattern. And you can use really light loads, like 30% of a one rep max and high reps, like 30, 40, 50 reps. And you've got tension there, but the load is really, really low. You take those sets to failure. Henneman size principle is the, the fancy way of saying it. Eventually, if you go to failure, you're activating all the muscle you voluntarily can. Okay. So you're getting so all the muscle involved at a very low load. And that's the low end. And, and to get to your question, if you go to above like 90%, like that's going to like for a squat, that's going to be like a three rep set. And there, this was actually, actually done. I heard this anecdotally in one of, I think it was one of Brad Schoenfeld's studies. They tried to compare like 10 sets of three versus three sets of 10. And one of the things that was reported that the subjects who did the 10 sets of three were just destroyed. Like sore joints are one of the things, hopefully I'm not misquoting anything that I heard. I heard this on a, pick this one, a podcast and I heard it somewhere else from someone. Um, and of course, neurologically, that's just disastrous. Oh yeah. Loads are. So, so there is some volume requisite. Like you just can't do, you know, five sets is enough. So you do five doubles. No, that's not going to be, that's only 10 reps. So there's some volume that needs that needs to also be in play as well. So but we've got such a wide, this Mount St. Hypertrophy thing is just, the landscape is gigantic. So you have to sum out attention. If you go to one rep maxes, then the voluntary effort that goes into those or, or sets of three, four, five, you know, six, you'll see a lot of people like Jordan Peters is one, one person who stands out. He likes to do low rep sets now and again. And some of that is, you know, because it's just friggin' fun to pick up really heavy shit. But you also get to learn how to pick up that heavy stuff, and that makes lift, lifting heavier loads um, psychologically less of a less of a, a, a stress, so to speak. You can handle those heavier loads easily. You're learning, like you pick up a load that you're going to only a squat, let's say that you're going to lift four or five times, and like you have to be really on it to stay with your form. You know, powerlifters know this better than anyone. Yep. That'd be a lot of lot of control there. So there's a neurological component that goes into that which makes you better at training in with a higher rep range. That's still very heavy because it's relatively light for you. You've, you've, you're taking some of the skill that you learned with that really heavy training and carry it over to the lighter load training, which is what's going to get the muscle growth. But the sets of three, four, five themselves, people are like, why do you do that? It doesn't produce muscle growth, but yeah, but it makes you better at the sets that do produce muscle growth. Right. Exactly. There's that, yeah. that adaptation of the, the like central nervous system adapts to that heavier load to be able mm -hmm. to move more weight on the accessory work or volume work. Like, you said. yeah. Or um, even particularly for those exercises, you know, if those are big, mm -hmm. like you wouldn't want to, like, there's no need to do that with like a bicep curl. Like you don't need no. to do a triple, but for big lifts, like, you know, hip hinge stuff, those sorts of things that can have some care. And powerlifters will do this. There's there, some guys like with a heavy squat, like to say a guy can squat 800 pounds. Well, he may go into the rack and just put, put 920 on there and just stand up with it and hold that shit, you know, while he feels like he's being crushed, you know, mm -hmm. by, yeah. by King Kong and then re-rack that. Then when he goes back to 700, it's like, okay, you know, I can handle this because he's mm -hmm. experienced that. So that's probably a psychological, neurological phenomenon. What do you think about, uh, you were talking about Brad Schoenfeld, I think, and that, I, I think it was like that study where, you know, uh, the high rep 
work just about as good as is like a low rep. So uh, three by 50 compared to three by 10 and the light, it was a lighter weight. Um, yeah. Do you think uh, I'm, I'm asking this because John isn't on and it was one of his questions. Do you think okay. that that'll that that's a something that would do you believe in it? And then number two, would it be something that would work well for the guys as we get into our 50s and 60s uh, to still be able to potentially put on muscle and not tax uh, the joints as as hard? Yeah, those there's several of those studies. Brad's done one of them. There's a couple others uh-huh. where the light load with heavy load stuff and. It's a pretty clear picture that, you know, you can get away with like 30%, 50% of a one rep max and produce muscle growth. There, those studies, I believe, are all in untrained individuals, um, although that can, that can happen too with trained people. I mean, you've probably seen that like someone, like maybe with your calves, like how long have you been training calves with heavy loads and then you switch to a lighter load and then you, yep. you were probably 15 years into it when you figured that out, right? I, mean, I did higher reps too because, I mean, I, yeah. a lot of it was body weight in between. Yeah. Right. Really light. Basically, yeah. you're pr- probably doing leg press calf raises with like 900 pounds or something like that. Right. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. working. <laughs> and then you went to body weight. Like, what yeah. the hell? Right. It's hard to believe. But yeah. So there's definitely something. What I what I would really love to see. And I'm um, actually talking with a buddy of mine, Chris Barrett, because we have these data um, is there's phenomenon. There's another, there's one study that I just talk about ad nauseum. If anyone's listened to my other, other podcasts, you hear me talk about this, but in this particular study, there's a principle that they looked into. They, they compared training basically was 15 sets versus nine sets versus six sets a week, three sets of 10 for two times a week, three times a week or five times a week. And they did this with, um, within subjects design. So every subject trained five times a week, three sets of 10 on one leg, just knee extensions. And the other leg got either two or three times. There's no difference. The study showed nothing. Well, there is a lot of difference on the individual level. Some of the guys did better. I think we may have covered this at the, the Nashville conference. I'm not sure. I think I might have talked about it. Um, it I talk about it all the time. In your presentation. I think okay, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the bottom line there is that some people, it didn't matter, actually. And that's what the average was because there's so much variability. For some people the higher, the higher volume, higher frequency was better. And for about a third of them and about a third of them is the other way around. And there were extreme responders that are not so good responders. So you look at the, at the high, the high load versus low load, the higher or the lower rep versus higher rep. And you see on average that they're about the same, but I would imagine that you probably have some people that respond better to the higher load than the lower load and vice versa. So that's one of my questions. I'd love to see those data expanded because these guys did a really nice job. They said, okay, there's no difference when we look at the averages or on the stats. But if we look at the individuals, we see this really glorious pattern that's so important for coaches and people to know that some people are going to do better with lower volume. Some people do better with higher volume. And you don't know basically until you figure it out. I think that's probably the same with the low load and the high load. The other thing that I would love to see pulled out of those studies in general is we have like as this fundamental concept, and I'm not arguing against this at all, that progressive overload is the, way, is, is the name of the game, right? To some degree. That didn't necessarily pan out with your, with your calves, but I imagine you got better at your calf training over, the, over time. You, oh, like, 100%. I, can, yeah. I couldn't even really get on the fire when I first started. Now, I mean, I, you know, I can right. make what hurts, you know? So, yeah, they've definitely got, gotten better just – at doing calf races yeah my muscle connection got better but like maybe you could only do i don't know 
25 body weight ones. And, and now you can probably do 125, no problem. Sure. Right. So, so there's progressive overload. So I'd really be interested to, to see, you know, look at these data and say, do the people who have the greatest performance improvements over these studies have the greatest growth? I mean, that's, that's kind of a, that's like a really basic phenomenon that we, we all, we all hang our hat on that hook all the time, but you don't, you don't, you don't see this. It's been poorly demonstrated in the literature and almost all these studies employ progressive overlay. They have the data there. And that's a, that's a telling, that's a really important thing to know because on the one side of the coin, we have the best bodybuilders in the world, most of whom don't log book shit. They just go in there and they get stronger and most of them are stronger, but you also have people like, you know, Flex Wheeler comes to mind, Paul Dillett comes to mind, people with amazing physiques and they weren't relative, all that strong given how big they were. So it would be interesting to know if, for instance, you have some people who progressive overload needs to happen for them to make, make gains. And I think that maybe many people, hard gainers typically, I think if you take almost anyone and they're not growing and you say, okay, let's make a monster out of you where you're squatting 500, you're pulling 600 from the floor and you're, you know, you're pressing three plates on an incline bench, you're going to be big. It's going to have to happen along the way, but some people can get big without, without doing that. So to get to your, get to your question, um, I think the low load training or the, the, yeah, the low load training, the higher up training on the average, it definitely works, but for some people it may not work all that well. Um, and like for someone I just thought, and you guys can look this guy up. He's a, he's a really, he's quite a character. He's a, a German guy living in Mexico. And I've been listening to some of his podcasts. He just got an interview. I listened to this podcast just yesterday, literally. His name's Ben Wellen, H-E-U-L-L-E-N. And he's won, I don't know how many world championships he's won. He's literally, is un, un, unfortunately, most people don't know who he is, but he's still competing in his 60s. Wow. And, and he's gotten, he's better now, like, like currently, like today, because he just competed recently um, than he's been since he was in his forties. And the thing that he said in this interview, and it's, the interview is all in German. It's on the, for any Germans who listen on the Ganicus podcast just came out like this week. He basically says is that he rediscovered that he's got to train hard and heavy and put himself in a lot of pain that he wasn't worth, wasn't willing to do before mm -hmm. he's training like he did. And he's been training for a long time. So he's had some injuries, that sort of thing, but he knows how to train hard and this getting older and like, I'm going to just go lighter and try to do more reps. That wasn't really working for him. When he came back to training heavy, of course, given his strength mm -hmm. level, don't try to pick up a weight. You can't move sure. Do something you couldn't do, but training in those heavier rep ranges for his strength level is what brought him back to where he's, He's not getting new muscle. He knows that, but he's looking like he like he did back in his 40s. Not his absolute best, but much better than he ever expected he could. And that was from doing what he had done to get him where he was. So, so how do we <clears throat> so so that's, you know, how do we stay healthy then at 60 doing that? Like, do you think um, there's I know, you know, back in 2010, I got to um, be trained by John Meadows. Um, and one of the things he taught me was that you know, he would have me squatting like third, you know, and he's like, right. man, you know, you're only 30, but your joints are going to eventually, I, I want you to warm up with this and this right. and that. And then now this. So do you do any of that? Do you think there's validity to that? Because I mean, I'm 45 and I'm not really fading, but I'm not, I'm not at my best right now. And I, I'd like to 
hold on to it. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure all these things out. So these are kind of selfish questions at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I wish you could, I don't know if you can, you may be able to play the subtitles and get them translated in English. Sometimes you can do that. If you, I can send you this podcast if you want it. Um, but Ben talks about that too. You, and I agree with the hardly, you have to adjust. So like, for instance, with you, um, with your calves, like mm-hmm. if you want to, you would never go back to trying to train your calves heavy. No. Cause they didn't work for you. No. So for Ben though, the heavy training did work for him. So he went back to what seemed to work for him. If, let's say Flex Wheeler or Paul Dillett were trying to make a comeback and they got as big as they were as, or looked like they did with just kind of like going in there and doing high volume, you know, stopping sets, several reps shy of failure, not logging anything, no progressive overload. That would probably work for them again. They wouldn't say, okay, now I got uh, Paul Dillett. If you were, if you could hypnotize him into doing this, he's not going to go back and say, oh, now, now do you train like Jordan Peters? Right. It's not going to happen. Um, Jordan also too, just speaking of same sort of idea, a few years back, he tried to give it a, a shot at, at, you know, holding some reps in reserve and increasing his volume, trying to look for something new to get some more growth. And he, and it didn't work out for him. So it turns out he had found at least up to then, you know, the best strategies he possibly could. So, so if heavy training is, is something that works for you and it, for many people it is, but there's some people it do- doesn't and for your calves, it didn't. Yeah. then that would be something you'd want to go back to if you want to regain what you once had. But John's wisdom absolutely holds true. Um, I, even way back when, like I trained with Dave Henry for, you yeah. know, about eight years and, and Dave, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm like, I think maybe, I think I'm four, four or six years older than Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dave's got much better genetics than me. And Dave kind of do whatever he wanted to. And I think I probably incurred much more damage during our training than Dave did because I had to, there's numerous stories, but I had to really go after it in order to keep up with him in many cases. And we would, you know, near the end there, we would go to do whatever set of whatever it might be. And, and I would like, let's say it's a hammer. I remember like, I think this is one of the videos we're doing a hammer. I think this may be in his, like one of the videos that we filmed together and we do a hammer strength, like either a, a wide, wide chest press or an incline press. And we're going to go up to like four plates maybe. So I, I do like one plate and I do like 15 reps and I do two plates to like 10 reps, do three plates and do like six reps. Then Dave just waits till I get to, to two plates and he just does like 30 reps. And then he goes right up to four. It's like, Dave, but he can do that. He can get away with that because he was young. So you need to do the stuff that John was talking about. Do the hamstring work too, like pre-fatigue yourself yep. because, and this relates to this aging thing, which is with John's question and doing higher reps is that one of the things I think that does differ that that's sort of the conundrum is that over, we have the course of we, father time has been coming, coming after us for decades. Right. Yeah. And the issue there in part is there's just an aging phenomenon, but in terms of skeletal muscle, the connective tissue, that's part of the, every muscles an organ. So we've got, we've got collagen and other, and elastin, other connective tissue fibers that are there. And those over the course of time can, can, can suffer wear and tear, so to speak. You get cross-linking, um, ad, advanced glycation end products. People can look up AGES, A-G-E-S. Um, and so basically you have some loss of mechanical integrity to that connected tissue such that you're simp- it's just not as smart to try to train with 600 pounds on your back for squats or to do the heavy-ass lifts that you once did, if at all possible. But 
I would be, I would, for numerous, numerous reasons, I think if you're someone who grew best from the heavy loading, you're going to have to stick to that to some degree. You're going to have to dance with the one who brung you, as Dante would say, as I like to say too. Um, but you can't dance with the same version of her. You have to use dance with a watered down version. But the same idea of progressive overload with the weights that you can handle, let's say in a pre-fatigue state. So instead of like going to your squats right off the bat, you know, you warm up with a hamstring curl, you do a unilateral leg press, you know, or a Romanian split squat or something like that. So instead of using 500 pounds, you're using 350 pounds. And then you try to progress on that if you're going to use progressive overload as your, um, as your main medicine for muscle growth. Mm-hmm. So it's, but, but that's still going heavy in your relative fatigue state. So there's only so much you can do if you, if you're, if you're injured, that's the thing when, when John was alive, sometimes we would, we used to joke for the last few years and we just said the marker of a successful workout is that we didn't get injured. And there's <laughs> yeah, a lot that's of truth to nice. that. It's like, how's your workout? I didn't kill myself. Okay, good. That was like mm-hmm. our, you know, like the two old guys, like, you know, sitting on the corner, like, you know, saying the same shit to each other every day. That was what John and I used to used to say to one another. Oh, so, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Jason's got to get going here soon and we could like keep going on forever. Honestly, uh, we still have questions that we didn't get to get to ask you, but uh, I think we'll Lord. probably have to have on, on another time when John yeah. can be on here, too, of course. Yeah, that sucks. Um, but yeah, um, where, you know, is a good place for everyone to get a hold of you, find your books. Um, I'm going to link your books in the show notes and everything, but where's the best place that people can come talk to you for questions? Dr. Scott Stevenson, drscottstevenson.com is my website. That's the best place to get the books. You will find pirated versions of the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book all over the place. Those don't help me. They help the pirates. So don't feed the pirates, please. Um, uh, and I'm on Instagram. You've got to do the social media thing. So that's a good, of you course. can find you can find links to all my podcasts and all sorts of things. So I, I use that as a main, a main way of disseminating, hopefully uh, at least interesting, if not educational information. Yeah. Yeah, of course there, I went and looked at your link tree and there was a ton on there. So, so okay. yeah, I definitely am looking forward to diving more into that too. So, so yeah, um, but thank you so much for coming on and talking today with us. It was awesome. Lots of good information, definitely more still to uncover. So, um, Thanks for you guys for listening and uh, we will see you next time. See ya.